This is the Watermark Equipping webinar. We're glad you guys are joining us. There's a few things I want to go over with everybody before we actually get into the content, and that is the your control panel that you should see off to the right of your screen. There should be a handful of options there, and we just want to orient you to that so that uh, everybody's tracking along with the options that are there. So one, you should see the screen that's on my computer. So it should have the equip and then second Timothy two, two logo on it right now. And then underneath that, there's a few other options. One, I want you to pay attention to the questions tab there that when you select that there, that's the way that as we're talking, you can, you can interact with us. We've got a guy here in the studio with us today who is going to be fielding questions. And then if a if your question is pertinent or if a lot of people are asking the same question, then he's going to kind of interject and then we'll address that question live. And then the other thing I want to orient you to is the handout tab. There's two handouts. One is the essentials and non-essentials PDF. That's just a, a standard, the slides that we're going to go through today. That's there for you to, uh, for you to check out and take notes. If you're, if you're at an office and want to print it out, then you can download it, print it out and just kind of take notes there at your desk. If you're in the car and don't have a printer, you know, sorry, whatever. <laughs> and then the second one I want to orient you to is, is uh, an article by Dan Wallace. We'll talk about it a little bit later called A Bibliology Grounded in Christology. So that's, that's just for you to keep. Again, we'll talk about it here in a minute. And so with that being said, we're going to go until one o'clock. And today's topic, well, uh, before I even get to that, let me introduce the people that are in the room. Um, like I said, my name's Nathan, and my co-host is Nika Spalding. Hello. <laughs> Nika is uh, serves on the equipping team as well, doing uh, all things women's ministry and theology and other stuff like that. That's right. Yeah. And then we also have Jeff Grandy in the studio with us today. Hey, guys. Um, he's going to be uh, taking your uh, questions over text, and so... When you ask a question, that's who you're going to be talking to. And then for our guest panelists today, we have Dr. Justin Bass. He is the uh, an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He teaches a lot of Greek, <laughs> and yeah, and he's also he a lot of lamb and hummus. Yeah, that's right. I said hummus last night. Absorbus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just teach Greek. I eat. Greek. I eat Greek. That's good, dude. That's good. He, uh, he's also the lead pastor at 1042 Church up in uh, far north Dallas, in the Frisco area, right? Um, and so he's been doing that for a while. And if, you're, if you don't go to Watermark and maybe you're from his church or elsewhere around in DFW, you may have seen him on the apologetic scene. He's pretty active in regard to that. He's debated a handful of guys. One of probably his biggest debate uh, as of late was against Dr. Bart Ehrman. And uh, did a good job with that. Great so, to be here. Yeah, man. So today we're going to talk about the uh, the essentials and non-essentials of Christianity and kind of how to tell the difference between those two and, and also um, why that distinction is so important. So the screen you should be looking at right now is it looks like a target. And in the center of the target, the bullseye, are the essentials. And then out the next concentric circle out from that are what we like to call convictions. Then from there goes opinions and questions. And so just to delineate and kind of exactly what those are, um, the essentials are things we're going to talk about today. And these are, these are simply the things that in order to be Christian, you just can't reject these things. You don't necessarily have to have in-depth knowledge of these things and have to, or to be able to talk about them as accurately as possible. But you just can't, when, when someone presents these to you, you can't reject them. So if someone comes along and says, hey, we believe that Jesus is not God, then you can't, you can't be like, okay, well, that's, you can be Christian and also agree with that. You have to accept the fact that Jesus is God. Yeah, but we're not saying that, you know, you out at the store and you decide to share the gospel with somebody as the Lord prompts you. And then you go, okay, before I leave here, I'm going to need you to articulate back to me these seven essentials in totally. order for you to be considered a believer. That's not what we're saying. Right. We just really want to double down on this idea is as you gain more knowledge, these are the things that you cannot reject as you come to know what they mean in greater detail. Yep. And I would add th throughout church history, these, uh, these particular things are, if 
someone rejected him has always been considered a heretic or mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. of orthodoxy. That's right. that's what the essentials basically cover. Things that if you reject, you are outside of orthodoxy. You are lar- largely throughout you know, church history considered a heretic. Yeah, yeah. And that word, sometimes that word gets tossed around pretty easily in, in conversations today. Oh, it's heretical or whatever. But we're, we're talking about like, in, in the history of the church, things that are actually considered heretical, not just things that are non-essential and you just don't happen to agree with. These are essential things that, that you must not reject in order to be Christian. And then the non-essentials, we fit into those three categories that I think are helpful. And that first ring are the thing, are, like you can see on the screen there, there's doctrines that are extremely important but are not essential. Um, and we think that these are probably doctrines that are important enough that these could prompt someone to actually break fellowship. And by break fellowship, we mean just not go to church at a certain place because they hold yeah. to uh, a different conviction than, than you might. Yeah. Obviously being a woman, the one that comes to mind most often is just the idea of gender roles. And so this is, you know, what's the role of a wife and a husband what's the role of a woman in the church, things like that, that we would say are very important. And so it may determine where you're willing to go to church, but certainly not something we'd be willing to say, hey, you're not a believer if you don't hold right. to the same views that, that we believe right. are true. I'll give you another example yeah. where in, in church history, there was a, a break of fellowship over what I would consider everyone is considered a non-essential uh, issue would be like predestination. So yep. where you fall on predestination and how you understand that, uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield actually started out close to one another, but they had to kind of break fellowship in a way they couldn't preach back to back because right. of their different views of how they proclaimed the gospel yeah. and how they proclaimed God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And so while they loved each other and were brothers in Christ, they, they had to, in a way, break fellowship in that way of, of they couldn't preach at the same time on a non-essential issue. That's that's a, yeah, and even then, I mean, uh, being the guy that leads the apologetics ministry here at Watermark, there we probably have to, you know twenty four, twenty five people on that team, and even with even with a uh, talking about election, predestination, free will, sovereignty of God, that sort of thing, we there's people on the team that hold the entire spectrum of views in regard to that issue. But um, everybody on the team has just resolved in their own heart to be like, but it's o- but that's okay. And so depend even then it's depending on how stringently you right. hold that. Yeah, great. Sure. Yeah, we already have a question uh, from a listener who asks, does breaking fellowship due to convictions apply to relationships within a church body as well? Yeah, you know, I think uh, that's a great question, and I do think it. it I think it does. And what I mean by that is. And again, this comes back to Nate's point he was just making of how strong of a conviction this is for you. And so I can go back to my gender role question. So I think if a guy were like, hey, I think your only position in the church would be for you to be in the kitchen cooking my meals, I'd be like, well, this is not going to work out. Uh, and so that's an example. Or also, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, maybe the idea wait, of baptism. Wait, you don't believe that? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if that's news to anybody. Yeah, but, um, or even the idea of baptism, that that's something that a couple, as you can continue on, you know, sort of maybe in a dating relationship and things like that, and you go, hey, I firmly believe that baptism is through submersion. And, and maybe this person is going, well, actually, I grew up in a different faith background. And I, and I want to sprinkle my babies because it's so important that, and, and I think that would be something that I wouldn't say that would necessarily break relationship, but it's certainly something to consider of how strong that conviction is. And again, not enough to say you're not a believer, but something that might be, you know, a strong enough conviction to go, Hey, I don't think I can attend a church that baptizes infants as opposed to a church that, that does submersion with, with believers. And that's a great example. And I, I think that's important to, to explain what I, what I mean by break fellowship, because you know, a person that decides to go to a Presbyterian church versus a Baptist church based on baptism, it's not a negative. I don't, I don't sure. see that. So yeah, break fellowship, we might, maybe we need, even need to come up with a more positive term because, yep, yep. you know, you're just, you just believe differently on how you want to Absolutely. do baptism. That's not a negative thing. And you could still fellowship with that. Totally. You know, with that person. Yeah. So we're, when we say break, non-essential issue. yeah, sorry to interrupt. When we, when we say break fellowship, we're not talking about like being angry at someone and never talking to them right. again. What we are saying is, uh, is you, you're making a deliberate choice to be a part of a local body that holds to certain views, and that if some of those views or some of their convictions differ from yours, that that might be something that would be an impetus or a cause for you to look for a church elsewhere that holds more tightly to your convictions. 
but you still, but I would say, you know, in all of these things, unity, like there needs to be unity. I would never encourage someone, oh, I hold to a different view of election, so I can't be your friend. Like, sure. That's not what we're saying. Sure. Not what we're saying, just to clarify. I do want to temper that response, though, as well. I think in a lot of these examples we're giving, there are ones that we go, hey, there's, there's difference here, but we can respect that position. And I also think this is one of those dividing lines where... There are expressions of the local church that would say maybe something like homosexuality is an mm-hmm. acceptable practice yeah, yeah, for the yeah. ministers totally. that we would go, hey, not this is a conviction. And I do believe your view is immature. And 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 yet again, still going. But I don't believe it's essential. I'm not willing to take not that extra step. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And so but so I so again, I think there's even varying levels of the co-centric circle within convictions that say, hey, this is a this is a big deal for me. But all my brothers and sisters who happen to disagree, that that's nothing that, you know, is a major in terms of relational stuff. However, maybe maybe being in a relationship with somebody who says, hey, I think it's absolutely OK for a minister to be a practicing homosexual, then going, hey, that's a different even level of conviction within that circle. Yep. No doubt. So the so then moving on from in outside of convictions to opinions and questions, which really even us talking about this before we uh, started broadcasting live that line between opinion and question is pretty blurred. (laughs) So opinions are views that can be held and even strongly held, but should not cause division in the local body. And then questions are views that don't have a clear answer. You know, one person's guess is better than the other one. And these kind of things should never create division. So Nika, why don't you give us a couple of examples of what you would consider like a question? Yeah. So a question would be things when we talk about should never cause division. So you're sitting at home with your friends and you're trying to figure out, did God create aliens? Well, we have no idea. This is not going to cause me to consider you an enemy of the gospel in any way. Um, We just don't know. And something that I would throw in the questions category is just, you know, the age of the earth. I think there are some who are more passionate about this and would say that's more of a, that's more of an opinion for them that they do feel like there's strong evidence for that. And, And maybe it's just, you know, to my, to my own ignorance in that topic. But I would, I would put that somewhere between opinions and questions, which is hence why the line's a little bit blurry. Yeah. Yeah. What about you guys? I would add, you know, political issues even. I mean, you might divide for other reasons, but uh, but as far as the, for the gospel, I think Christians can fall on both sides of the debate, whether it's health care, immigration, gun control, military intervention, all these mm-hmm. different things. I think we don't have a, we have gray area and, and we have principles in scripture, but we don't have a black and white, this is a gospel issue. Yeah. And so when it comes to uh, uh, practice of homosexuality, gay marriage, abortion, these are more things that the scripture is black and white on and very clear. And so those things need to be made clear. But on those other issues, I think that, you know, we should never make those a, a division for as a gospel issue. Yeah, no doubt. And that's, I mean, ultimately, that's uh, what, what we're saying here is there, there are going to be things that are convictions because Scripture is clear about them. And depending on which tradition you're from, obviously, it's going to highlight various, you know, passages in Scripture. But it's, it's kind of the old adage, like, hey, we're going to be firm where Scripture is firm, and we're going to be gentle and loose where scriptures not as firm you know it's it's and so um, that's that's kind of the heart behind the concentric circles and thinking about these things and so now that we've kind of talked about non-essentials let's get to what are the essentials and to do that we're going to start with one of the oldest creeds of the church that's called the apostles creed you probably have seen this before or at least heard it so i'm just going to read it real quick it should be on your screen but I'm going to read it, and then Justin, I'd love for you to comment and just walk us through the creed, and then just answer the question, what are the essentials? So this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, is his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 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 Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I think the Apostles' Creed is a great place to start. A great a great brief summary of what I think, what, what has been considered the essential doctrines of Christianity. And one thing that's just wonderful to know about the Apostles' Creed, not just the Apostles' Creed, but really the four, the, the four first great creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, all those creeds are agreed upon by all of Christendom. Mm-hmm. So whether you're Roman Catholic, whether you're Eastern Orthodox mm-hmm. or any of the Protestant denominations, 
2.5 billion Christians uh, estimated today, they all agree on those creeds. Now, they might disagree on a few uh, what those creeds mean, uh, what, what the forgiveness of sins and baptism means, things like that, but they agree on that. And so it's a wonderful thing that that's what I think C.S. Lewis meant by mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. So we have in the Apostles' Creed, the bare minimum mere Christianity. And I'm really big on that. I mean, at our church, pretty much our doctrinal statement is the, the Apostles' Creed. You know, as long as you agree on that, you can be anywhere on uh, predestination, on on a lot of different other uh, views. But the Apostles' Creed, I think, is the, the essential. And really, what do we have here? We have the Trinity. So we have, you must believe that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God, that um, that there's only one God. And then you have a lot more information on Jesus, obviously. So so Jesus is, a, is the center uh, of the gospel. And, and as we're going to argue, Christology is the foundation of Christianity. This, this is the ultimate anchor of our faith, who Jesus was, who he claimed to be, his death and his resurrection. And so you must, to be a Christian, you must believe that. And, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's crazy if that's controversial. I mean, to, to, from, uh, if anyone said uh, you didn't have to believe that uh, Allah is one God and Muhammad is his messenger to be Muslim, I mean, Muslims would laugh that out right. of the room. I yeah. mean, everyone agrees that in order to be Muslim, you have to at least believe that Allah is one, that there's one God and his name's Allah and uh, Muhammad is his messenger. Uh, same thing with Christianity. You must believe that Jesus is God, that you must believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again uh, on the third day. I think that that would be the most foundational, simple way to say what is what is the capital E essential of uh, Christianity. But the but as we go out into the Apostles' Creed, we see uh, more on if you wanted to list out like a seven uh, list essentials of the faith. And so his re- his return uh, bodily in the future, the resurrection of the body. Mm-hmm. That's another one. The communion of the saints. Uh, clearly, every you know Christians are going to believe in a church and, and need to be a are a part of the church and need to be a part of a, a body of believers. And then you know, and, and it's important to point out Holy Catholic Church. I'm glad some some, some uh, churches will will use a different word there because they they they're afraid to sound Roman Catholic. But really, the word Catholic just meant universal. Right. Uh, and so, like if we lived in the fourth century when fourth or fifth century when this was composed, we would have been Catholic. Right. Right? And honestly, if we believe in the Apostles' Creed, if we agree with these original creeds, we are in a sense Catholic. Yep. So that's why we add the word Roman Catholic because. Roman Catholic emphasizes a few uh, uh, additional doctrines that uh, have, have been debated, of course, for the last 500 years. But but yeah, I think uh, the, the Apostles' Creed gives us a nice uh, summary of what mere Christianity is. But if I had to give the most simplest definition of what of what the gospel is, it would be uh, what we're going to talk about a little bit. First Corinthians 15, yep. just that Christ died for our sins, was buried and he rose again. I mean, yep. what what does a child, what does a young child have to understand to be saved? Right. Yeah. They, they need to know that Jesus is their Lord, that that he uh, died for however they understand sins and that he rose again from the dead. I mean, a child's love for Jesus is going to save them. They don't have to fully understand the Trinity. They don't have to fully understand all these other things. So if you want to go down to the bare minimum. I would say that that's what the yep. bare, bare minimum anchor is. Of the yeah. Gospel. So when when do you just off the top of your head, do you know where when the Apostles Creed dates back to? It was 400. Yeah. 400. That's what most scholars would say it was. Uh, they usually put around 390, 400, yeah. is the, the dates that I've seen. Yeah, and, and obviously— It's I mean, not the apostles. Like, the apostles didn't compose it. To, totally, it, totally. They call totally. it the apostles' group. Yeah, yeah, but but that um, transitioning to our next topic, we and that is— We do have the apostles' That group. is, what, awesome. what is the original <laughs> apostles' creed, that, and where does it date to? So talk to us about the original apostles' creed and the dating of that and how we know that we can, you know, that it's historical, we can rely on it. yeah. I, I get the opportunity to, to debate regularly, and it's hard for me to debate an unbeliever and demonstrating the truth of the gospel without pointing out this creed. It's really incredible. If you, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15 is what I'm referring to, and it's a, it's something that Paul is quoting. So 1 Corinthians 15, I mean, 1 Corinthians, the letter dates to around 50, uh, 53 AD. But the creed that Paul is quoting here, I won't get into all the details, but basically scholars are, are agreed, whether atheist, whether agnostic, whether Jewish, it is agreed upon by all scholars that this creed that Paul is quoting here goes back to within two years yeah. after Jesus's death, which is, which is truly incredible. I mean, you compare this to any other ancient religion, just about any other ancient event or figure. You don't have documents that date to within a few years, possibly even months of the death of the figure it's referring to. And so what Paul says, starting at uh, verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And, and, and as I said Scholars are agreed that 
he received this probably sometime within three years after his conversion, which is about four years after Jesus's death, which means it was composed before. And that's how we get to about two years after Jesus's yeah, death. Got it. And this is the actual creed that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. Then to the 12, so here you, you even this early, you have that reference to the 12 yeah, yeah. followers of Jesus. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Uh, and then Paul probably maybe adds this as kind of a little apologetic. So <laughs> yeah, we, see, yeah. see Paul, we see Paul as a little apologist here because he says, some of whom are are still alive, yeah. but some have fallen asleep. So he's basically saying, hey, you Corinthians, you can go in. Yeah, go, yeah, go ask them. You know, don't right go over to there. Disneyland for your vacation <laughs> this year. Go to Jerusalem and talk to the people who've seen yeah, Jesus. Yeah. And then he says he appeared to James, which is referring to uh, Jesus's brother, and then to all the apostles. And then Paul, scholars agree, Paul just tacked this part on to the creed. Uh, this wouldn't have been a part of the original creed, but he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Mm -hmm. And so what we have here is Christ's death. We have uh, substitutionary atonement. We have mm -hmm. the fact that he died for our sins in our place. Mm -hmm. this, was this is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. We have the burial. We have the fact that he rose again. We have all these appearances to believers, unbelievers, groups, individuals. Really an incredible thing that we have. And so I like to call this the true Apostles' Creed because who put this together? Mm -hmm. I mean, if Paul got this when he went to Jerusalem, hanging out with Peter and James, that's who put this together. Peter, James, Jesus' brother, John, and other earliest followers. Yeah, he, of Jesus. Paul received it from the Apostles. I mean, that's apostles. who put this together. Right. And so this is what they were proclaiming within months at least at, at most two years after Jesus' death this is what they were saying in jerusalem so this is our true apostles creed that's we great and we, you know just an opportunity now for a shameless plug it's fun hearing you talk about this because we're getting we're writing curriculum right now for the acts women's bible study in the fall so if you don't have anything better to do in the fall and you don't because it's bible study wednesday mornings thursday nights <laughs> but what's great is the same idea as i've been studying and doing it you you see these early on speeches of people like peter and stephen and others and what they're proclaiming as the witnesses, and it's all this, this central idea of this death and resurrection of this figure of Jesus. And um, and obviously it expands and we get the, the letters from Paul and all that, but this central idea of this grace, this free gift, this salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus is seminal in the Christian belief. It wasn't developed later. It was from the beginning. And why we can with confidence say, this is what it means to be a Christian, to hold true right. to these things and all the other stuff in those other concentric circles were not in those speeches. They weren't, mm -hmm. you know, the original convictions of what it meant to be a Christ follower. Yeah. And, and, you know, what's funny about this, you know, just, just this morning, actually, I was having a, having a nice discussion with, with one of my uh, uh, atheist friends. And uh, he was bringing up comparing Buddha and uh, Jesus. And, and I just said, you know, hey, you know, as, as you're mentioning Buddha's character, you're mentioning things about Buddha. But let, let's just talk about the sources for a second. What are the primary sources for Buddha's life? And when you compare this, it says I mean, it's really laughable. I mean, we don't have anything about Buddha until like four or five hundred years after right. his, his life. And here we have within two years of, Ju of Jesus's death. So an, an incredible parallel. And it's like that with just about every specifically religious figures in the ancient world. And so it's really, really an unparalleled thing. And I've, I've said to people, if this was all God gave us, like if this is what came down, this is our New Testament, mm -hmm. you know, these, these, these six verses, this creed, this is all we had. We would still have really the foundation, the essentials, the essentials of Christianity. Of Christianity. Yeah. Right. It's so nice. He gave us the gospel, yeah, yeah. Revelation, <laughs> 27 books, but this is everything. We yeah. have everything just with this. That's yeah. an incredible thing. Yeah. I, as I'm, as I'm thinking about it too, in my mind's eye, I'm picturing these guys, you know, as, as the earliest witnesses to the actual event. Um, and what's crazy to me too, is, is that uh, out of the Jewish religion, out of this, this belief system where uh, very, at the very core and center of, of their belief was both Torah and then their, their, the Jewish creed, which is, you know, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, you know, and now all of a sudden out of Judaism comes this belief where you get something like this, where they're saying, no, now Christ died for our, for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now they're, they're linking Jesus to, you know, the, the prophecies of the old Testament, right. the, the physical resurrection and, and, and his appearances um, as, as someone to be worshiped. And so out of this, you know, out of these people who are worshiping just Yahweh as one, begin to worship Yahweh the Father and then also Yahweh the Son. Mm -hmm. And still there's one God. But to me, I'm 
that that in that in itself, if you're skeptical, that in itself demands explanation. What happened that would cause them yeah. to to come up with something like this? Yeah. And I think obviously the in kind of Occam's razor and a couple other things like the the clearest most natural explanation is something actually historically happened yeah. that this that yeah, this some, historical Jesus there was some kind of big bang I mean there, there, yeah, was, there some, was something yeah. there was something there was a lot of smoke here there, there was some yeah, kind of fire yeah, originally yeah, yeah. so yeah I mean the, the best the best explanation is that I think that Jesus actually did rise from the dead I mean, yeah that these uh, guys saw him heard him teach connected the dots went at you know post resurrection through the power of the Holy Spirit and I mean, Bart Ehrman makes a makes a great point um uh, almost kind of a concession compared to the things he said in the past, but in his uh, most recent book, How Jesus Became God, he talks about the fact that he he believes as a historian that Mary Magdalene, that Peter, that James, that John, all these people, uh, Paul, they believe that they saw Jesus. And he says, you know, I think it's hallucination. Mm-hmm. But he says, he has this, I love this quote, he says, it's not a historical sin to say that they really did see mm-hmm. the risen Jesus. I yeah, mean, so, basically yeah. saying that, you know, man, I mean, yeah, you got to pick one. You know, they saw something. What did they see? Did they see uh, the risen Jesus or would they see something in their mind? And the evidence is so strong that they saw something that you really have those two options. You have to pick one. Yep. That's good. Sounds like we need to bring Justin back to talk about evidence for the resurrection. <laughs> so, Nate, let's go ahead and move on to the next slide. Just show everybody. So, I mean, because obviously the Apostles' Creed has a lot of words and, and even Corinthians has a lot of words. But I think what we're, what we're hopefully coming through is what we're talking about is we we can boil down the essentials to maybe six or seven things. And you can see now in, in this middle of this co-centric circle, what we would say those six or seven things are that, as you can see, we got directly from first Corinthians and from the apostles creed that we would say, so Nate, you want to touch on some of those? And- yeah. I mean, as we walk through, I mean, obviously the, the apostles creed includes, we believe in God, the father and the son and the Holy spirit. So there's Trinity there. And then from the original apostles creed from, First Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. So obviously you, you can't be Christian and deny the existence of, of sin. That's just, you're, you're you can't be human. It's really problematic. Yeah. Well, the very nature of saying I need saving is the recognition that you need something to be yeah, saved yeah, from, yeah, which totally, is totally, yourself. <laughs> totally. Then, then the virgin birth, and this is one we were chatting about before we broadcast as well. The virgin birth obviously shows up in the actual apostles creed. He's born of the Virgin Mary. Um, but there's no mention of it in the original Apostles' Creed, and so uh, this is one of those that that's like, hey, is this a is this a big E essential or a small E essential? And we would probably say it's more of a small E E essential. I think you can probably be really confused, have really confused doctrine, and yet still believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus yeah. and be Christian. So talk about that for a minute. Justin. I would just say, you know, even you know, it's if if you think about just where do we learn about the virgin birth from the new testament it's really only from luke the first few chapters of luke and the first few chapters of matthew so if you think about it i mean how many christians did the apostles you know and other christian and other people evangelists go out and proclaim the gospel the death and resurrection of jesus were they mentioning the virgin birth well Mm -hmm. they you know it may have come up but it clearly wasn't a part of the absolute essential apostolic proclamation because mm-hmm. we don't see it in the book of acts as they went out around proclaiming so a lot of people came to faith and believed in jesus without even knowing maybe that jesus was virgin born now i believe jesus was virgin born as it says he is and i think throughout church history that's one of those things that if you denied you know that that's that's yeah. a very serious thing yeah, yeah. but is it a capital e essential i don't think it probably is uh, raymond brown the great new testament scholar i was telling him that he's one of the greatest new testament scholars of the 20th century and he was roman catholic but he was extremely liberal and uh, he came to the conclusion in his book on the uh, you know, stud- studying the, uh, the the birth stories of Jesus that there just isn't uh, evidence. He, he didn't think there was good enough evidence that uh, that's what the earliest Christians were proclaiming, that the virgin birth. But he said that he still believed it because the Pope told him it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it because my boss said so. <clears throat> so then moving on, obviously, the hypostatic union, which is the, the full humanity and the full deity of Jesus that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Obviously you have, like Justin said, I mean, that's clear in the creed in both creeds. I mean, you, you can't deny that and still be Christian. And then the, some sort of atonement. So obviously there's a bunch of various yeah, views on, a, on, on atonement. There's obviously like penal substitutionary atonement. There's Christus Victor, uh, the ransom theory. And so all of them believe that Jesus died for sin, but exactly how that plays itself out would, would probably fall more. Something in, about his, whatever he did when he died, it, 
saved us. Right. It exactly. rescued us. Right. That's what the word right. salvation means. A great, a great resource. Um, many of y'all might, uh, many of li- listening probably have the book, Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. In his introduction to that book, he actually discusses the different views of the atonement and basically comes down on all of them ha- probably have an element of truth in them. Mm-hmm. I'm just, because mm-hmm. I'm arguing for mere Christianity, I'm just going to say, I don't know for sure what it is, but that he has some great line where he basically says, you know, Jesus's death is the means by which we're saved. Yep. And, and just a very simple statement of that would be the bare That's what atonement is, right, right. And then I would say, it, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too, Justin, Nika, is, is the, to, to me anyway, and it, it seems even to Paul, in First Corinthians 15, if you go on and read the rest of the chapter, that the biggest E essential <laughs> is the resurrection of Jesus. That, uh, I mean, Paul says in First Corinthians, hey, if, if, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is meaningless, futile. I would say death and re- I would just say that they're both sides of the same coin. Yep. That one, you can't have one. If, if Jesus just died, and even if he bore the wrath of God and paid for our sins, if he hadn't been raised from the dead, then that would have been for naught. It mm-hmm. would have been nothing, as mm-hmm. Paul says. Mm-hmm. But if he had only raised, been risen from the dead, and he didn't, all the things that happened on the cross where he really did drink the cup of God's wrath and all the rest, if that hadn't been done, then he would have just been maybe somebody who, like Elijah, you know, was was taken into heaven or something like that. Right. So I think the, the so if he like tripped death, and fell off a cliff while right. he was walking his earthly ministry, and, 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 and then God brought him, brought him back up. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's the the two together seem to be because you have Paul, you know, even in, in First Corinthians uh, chapter two, you know, I, I came to preach and to say nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and so the crucifixion and the resurrection seem to go so hand in hand, and you see it in, in the Acts sermons as well. Resurrection is always there, but they also say something about Him being hung on a tree and things like that. That's good, man. Love it. And then lastly, we would say some sort of belief in we just use the word restoration. I, I know in 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 the Apostles' Creed, it's the resurrection of our bodies, the life everlasting, um, that, that, uh, again, you can't reject the fact that God will in some way, uh, heal what's broken and make things new. If you just believe that things are going to continue to toward chaos and forever, then that's just not Christian. So uh, that, that last essential would be, or even that we're just going to stay as souls, which a, a lot of people uh, in America, sadly, even in the church, think, you know, especially if you go to many funerals, that's what they, that's usually what you hear, you know, oh, they've died and gone to be with Jesus and that's it. You know, they don't even talk about the resurrection of the body. Like I said, that doesn't mean they're necessarily heretics or, you know, they're going to be damned because they don't understand the, the resurrection of the body. But uh, it is the Christian position and has always been in the Jewish position in the ancient world that we will be raised one day. We will get our bodies back, yeah. that, that, that these hands, these legs, while not uh, mortal and not uh, with sin anymore, but uh, imperishable and immortal and glorified, but we will get our bodies back. Yep. And that, that's yep. that resurrection of general resurrection is, is, is what's coming in the future. That's great. That's good. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and move into something because uh, there may be some people listening to this right now who are looking at those seven things in the center. And there's a glaringly uh, obvious, like missing one <laughs> for a lot of people. And, and so I, w- I want to talk about that, uh, especially at a church like Watermark, where uh, we place, uh, or we hold to a, to an extremely high view of scripture. And uh, pretty much everything we say is, you know, what does the Bible say about that? You know, where do you see that in scripture? Are you counseling one another from scripture? Are you, it's like scripture, scripture, scripture. And so it, it could be really natural for us to try to place scripture into the center and, and, uh, and especially this idea of inerrancy. So we would say, because the early church would say that, that inerrancy is not a central or essential doctrine of Christianity. And so Let's let's talk about why that doesn't fit into the center and where it does fit. And so, Justin, why don't you talk about that, and then we'll take some questions. Yeah, I put I would put probably biblical inerrancy. I'd put it on the non-essential. I'd put it on the non-essential list, and I would say, you know, I would parallel it to, for example, I, I believe in premillennialism, so I believe that you know Jesus is going to return one day, and uh, we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Now, what if uh, some just brilliant new St. Augustine came out and wrote a book and convinced me that amillennialism was true? <laughs> what would that do to my faith? What would that do to Christianity? Well, you know, wouldn't do much. I mean, you know, it'd be just I'd change my eschatological views. And so 
I think that's the same importance that we should place on biblical inerrancy. What I mean by biblical, what we mean by biblical inerrancy is that the Bible, the authors of the Bible in every subject that they touch on, they are without error. Mm -hmm. And so that includes, uh, that's not just about God and Jesus and salvation. That also includes historical events, scientific, maybe they may say something about the sun or, or, um, different uh, references that they make in the ancient world that they could have been wrong on. So if they were wrong on any of those points, then the Bible is not inerrant. Now, I do believe the Bible is inerrant. I've, as one who studied these things very in depth and look at the p places where people have claimed there's errors and things, I'm not convinced that I found one. I'd say that there's maybe five or six that I don't have the full answers, but I think we just don't have a lot from the ancient world. We're, we're, mm. we're you know, yeah, we don't totally. have everything to be able to, I think, come to the conclusion yet on some of those points. So I'm not convinced there actually has been any proven error yet, but it's important for us to realize that even if there were historical errors mm -hmm. in the Bible mm -hmm. or scientific errors or something like that, if God allowed that, that in no way undermines the faith. It in no, no way stops Jesus from rising from the dead. Yeah. It in no way stops Jesus from dying for, on the cross for our sins yeah. and things like that. So a lot of people would naturally think like, well, but I mean, you're getting, you're getting the original Apostles' Creed from 1 Corinthians 15, which is in the Bible. <laughs> and so if you're saying that the Bible could even could be errant in, in even minute ways, then doesn't that open the door for there to be massive mistakes everywhere? And, and then all, everything we know about Jesus, you know, it, you're, you're putting kind of on the chopping block. And so that, that's one of the common objections I've heard to this. And that's why on the slide you're looking at right now, we make the distinction between belief, ba belief in the Bible based on Christ versus belief in Christ based on the Bible. So uh, why don't you talk about that for a minute? And I'd say, and th this is what we believe about the Bible, that, that uh, I believe it's inerrant, but inspiration is something that we want to uh, distinguish mm -hmm. between inerrancy. So inspiration is that what Paul or what uh, Luke says or what Moses says, what he says about God, not, not talking about some historical event or uh, maybe something about science or something like that, but what he says about God, what he says about salvation, what they say about um, morality, those issues on faith and morals and on who God is, who Jesus is, they get that right. Mm -hmm. And they're inspired. And that is where I think that's a very, very important, yep. uh, Distinction uh, maybe the lower key, case E essential, mm -hmm. that we need to understand that, that the biblical writers got that right. But, I, but I, even on that, I have to point out, though, that even if the biblical writers got a lot of that wrong, even if they were wrong on a ton of that, a ton of, ton of those things, and we had to take the Bible like Bart Ehrman takes the Bible, because Bart Ehrman studies the historical Jesus. He came out with a whole book on the historical Jesus, how he views who Jesus is from uh, history. And the way he does that is he sifts through the documents of the New Testament, and he looks at the Bible just, just like we do, but he doesn't think any, any of them are reliable. So we can, I believe, and, and many top scholars out there like N.T. Wright do this, they'll go into the New Testament, not treat them as inspired or inerrant documents, and they will find who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, that he claimed to be God, that he died on this cross, that he claimed to be dying on the cross for sins, that the tomb was empty the next day, and that all these people saw him. And so we can get to the heart of the gospel without treating the Bible or the New Testament as inerrant or even inspired. And so that's an important point to make. And that's what we mean by Christology being the foundation of our faith and not bibliology. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, would, I would just make a point and then um, we can have some other people chime in. But I, I think I think the distinction is is that um, we, we don't base our faith on a book. We base our faith on a historical event that happened in time and space. Yeah. And so as, as soon as we're placing, as soon as the foundation for our belief is is a book, right? then we're in really dangerous waters. And uh, for the very reason that we'll talk about here in a minute of, of, of people who have walked away from the faith because their the foundation of their belief is misplaced. Mm -hmm. And so I would just say, like, I, I think that the, the reason I'm Christian, at least I can only speak for myself, is because I, I think there really was a dude who lived 2000 years ago who made outstanding claims about himself and uh, did miracles, and, and, did miracles and showed authority and uh, died on a cross for my sin. And that three days later, he rose from the dead and is now alive. In my opinion, that is true, whether there's a book about it or not. Okay. Whether there's a book about it does not change the fact that it actually happened in history. And let me just say briefly, 
parallel that with the virgin birth, what I said about the virgin birth, it's the same thing. So when you look at the book of Acts and you look at the, the early Christians and the apostles proclaiming the gospel, going around talking, they didn't go around and stand up and hold up 66 books and say, here are your 66 yeah. inspired inerrant books that mm-hmm. you must believe. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, no, they went and told the story of Jesus. Now, what we have in the Bible is the written version of basically what they did and what they were proclaiming. And that's why the Bible is so important and so treasured. And I yeah. believe it's inspired yeah. and I believe yeah. it's inerrant. But think about for all those decades and really centuries before the printing press, where the, all the books of the Bible got put together into one place that we call the Bible, where people believed in the gospel without even knowing about a Bible in a sense. Right. I mean, they knew that there were these, all these different books, but that no one had a Bible like we think of it. For the last 500 years. Right. So I think that's an important yeah, distinction. Yeah, I, th- I think that's where, you know, you, you being, I, I think I was going to make the same point y'all did, but you did it more eloquently, which is great. So I mean, there's almost a practicality of what you put in that center circle of essential to Christian faith. And like you're saying, Justin, we know how the transmission of the Bible came about. And, and, and most people didn't have, I mean, copies of it. And we weren't going around saying, hey, because of what was written, this is what we know. I mean, they were witnessing to the actual event of right. Jesus' death and resurrection. And in many places in the world today, they don't have their own written Bibles. I just feel uncomfortable going, hey, it's essential for you to believe in something you've never even been able to encounter or or hold to or this conviction. When, in fact, I'm going, actually, all I'm asking to is to hold to this historical event that has been told by the witnesses for 2000 years that really happened in time and space. And that is the core of Christianity is this person of Jesus, not this book. But um, because of that, though, I think this is a great transition point then. So we've been talking about all of this. And so what what you guys have hinted on, I think we jump into now, is there are implications for confusing what is essential and what is not. And what we've often seen is people throw out the baby Jesus with the bathwater, so to speak. And you touched on Bar Hammond <laughs> a little bit. Maybe y'all want to jump into that or, or even I think we have a question. Maybe is this the right time to throw in, Jeff? It's it's on a different topic. Okay. For sure. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's go let's, and do that. Yep, that's fine. I think it would help uh, some of our listeners are hoping for clarification on something you were talking about a little bit concerning the resurrection of our bodies and they quote you of our bodies uh this this comment might uh help a lot one listener says i thought we get new bodies not our bodies and then we had some follow-up yeah. questions okay that. cool yeah. that's a great point yes so the, a great a great way to think of this is jesus so what happened to jesus after he died and his, his corpse his body was put in the tomb when they went to the tomb it was empty mm-hmm. and the reason why it was empty is because that corpse of jesus was raised. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. The continuity is that we, our same DNA, who we are right now, will be raised in the future. But the discontinuity is that we will lose our sin. We will lose our corruption. We will lose the fact that our, these bodies will that I we have lose now. lose 15 pounds? That's what everybody's <laughs> wondering, gonna, Justin. Yeah, we're going to be the best, most fit. <laughs> right, I know. Right? I'm going to get a couple of inches of height. The glorified body is going to be great. <laughs> So, so that that's important, and, and scriptures for this, uh, other than just Paul, always compares our future resurrection body with Jesus's body. So we can look to the examples of Jesus and and the and the resurrection accounts in the Gospels as what our future resurrection body will be like. So, can we walk through walls? Yeah. Can we levitate into the sky? Clearly, our, the resurrection body is bound, but is not bound by uh, the, the law of gravity and, and things that our body is bound mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we don't know, but those are those are the basic facts that we do know. There's there's continuity and discontinuity. But yes, it is. It's going to be you. It's yeah. going. You're not yeah. going to. Because I mean, how exciting is that? It's like a clone. You know. I mean, my clone gets to live forever, but I die. I mean, that, yeah. What's yeah. up well, with that? And, I mean, and even in some faith religions, <laughs> I want to live. Yeah, forever. right. Well, you get reincarnated, and I'm like, no, yeah. but I like me. Yeah, I you want to be me. That yeah. yeah, exactly. No, that's, but that's but I think for the, the I think for the people who are listening who don't like themselves. I think I think that that for those people there is a redemption of your mm-hmm. desires. That's great. The sin, the fallenness of of our own nature mm-hmm. is going to be redeemed, and so we'll see ourselves as frankly as Christ sees us. Yeah. And and we'll uh, be the best. What whatever it is to be the image of God. Like we were made in the image of God, but the image has been tarnished. We are kind of subhuman in a way in this yeah. life yep. because of sin. Well, that's what it we're always... going to become yeah. truly human. Yeah. In this resurrection yeah, body, be that's what Romans eight says. Cre- yeah. Creation itself was subjected. Yeah. Like we're we are less than what we were created to be. So, um, all right. So let's make that sharp left back into those implications. Just make sure we get to it. And so, I just mentioned that people sometimes will throw the, the baby out with the bathwater because they. 
they're rejecting something that maybe is a conviction or a non-essential, and then they're throwing Christianity out with that. And so either one of y'all want to jump in on that? Yeah, I'll start. And then Justin, love to hear from you. As someone who does apologetics on a consistent basis, uh, this is the biggest mistake that I see people make. In fact, I had lunch with a guy this week who I just can't believe in a God who would send someone to hell, you know, or someone who's, you know, hey, I think there's errors in the Bible or something like that. And they place an, a non-essential into the center where it doesn't belong. And then they toss the whole thing out. Yeah. And and for me, as an apologist, what, what I find myself doing most of the time with people is just helping them to see that there is actually an order of importance in what we believe. And so don't start with a non-essential and then place all of the essentials underneath it. You're, you're making a you're making a potentially fatal mistake. And so um, that's and that's probably the the crux of what we're trying to communicate today is to look at these concentric circles, understand what belongs in the center and understand that your faith is based on a historical event and a, and a person, a person who lived among us, right? Like the beginning of John, uh, first, the John's first epistle. Um, These are the things that I saw with my eyes and touched with my hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about real life, historical um, experience with an, with another individual, with another human. And, um, not some ethereal doctrine out in, in off in the, in the sky that's unrelatable. And so taking a secondary issue and placing it in the center will potentially cause people to miss out on what is essential. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, young earth creationism, biblical inerrancy, speaking in tongues, and we go down the list. Mm-hmm. These do not need to be the foundation. These do not no. need to be the make or break. We need to make clear the gospel, which is what the earliest apostle proclaimed, the foundation of Christianity is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to, and, and that we have unbelievable evidence for it. That's why you know you have Christians uh, like William Lane Craig or who you know go down the list, N.T. Wright, world-renowned scholars who go out and they'll debate the best of the best, and they win every time. When you put the best of the best believer uh, demonstrating the evidence for our faith with the best of the best unbeliever. The Christian wins every time. And it's because the facts are on our side, right. because the truth is on our side, because we have such evidence with the resurrection of Jesus and, and and his death and burial. And so we need to make this the foundation. I really think the implications on this are so, so dire, so important, because without this distinction, uh, which has, I, I think is what has happened for the last hundred years, really specifically in America. And I, I would say that, that this is the reason for the rise of atheism, specifically from many Christians coming out of mm-hmm. uh, a Christian household, mm-hmm. coming even going to church all their life, but they go to college and they graduate atheists. And many of them, it's because the vast majority of them come from some type of tradition where the Bible has been held up as the make or break thing. And if there's as, one error in the Bible, if you th- if you come, go to college and your professor convinces you that there's an mm-hmm. error in the Bible, you think, well, well, I, I need We're to, I need to become an atheist, yeah, you know, yeah. you, you, it, it, and it doesn't happen that simply, but it definitely leads people down that path. And we could give, I could give you 20 examples off the top of my head and many famous ones. I'll give you uh, Bart Ehrman as, as a classic example of this. And, and just his example, I think is the, is the example that so many have fought has have followed. And like I said, I don't blame atheists for this. I blame the church. I think mm-hmm. the church has yeah. not made Christ and, and his death and resurrection mm-hmm. the center. Mm-hmm. They've made uh, really worshiping a book a in a book, way, yeah. and, and and that's really not yeah. what we should do. But uh, Ehrman, if you didn't know, he went to Moody, he went to Wheaton, some of the most evangelical schools in the country, and he tells this uh, the story of um, kind of what led him down the path towards uh, atheism, agnosticism at the beginning of misquoting Jesus, and he went to Princeton. So after he graduated, uh, I think it was Wheaton, he went to Princeton, and he was de- he was writing a paper on the Gospel of Mark on a passage in uh, Mark chapter two, verse 26, dealing with what seemed to be a contradiction. He was trying to answer and trying to harmonize and try to answer it. And he write this is, this is what Ehrman says in his book. He says, at the end of my paper, he, meaning his professor, made a simple one-line comment that for some reason went straight through me. He wrote, maybe Mark just made a mistake. I finally concluded, hmm, maybe Mark did make a mistake. Once I made that admission, the floodgates mm-hmm, opened. Mm-hmm. Why did the floodgates open? I mean, really? I mean, because Mark made a historical blunder, I don't think he did. But even if he did, that means Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Yeah, that means yeah, God didn't exist. Now, leap, to be yeah. fair, Ehrman does argue that the, the ultimate reason he became an agnostic was the problem of evil. But notice, and it's not just here. 
this is what really led him down that path was this assumption that if there's an error in the Bible, that means my faith is undermined completely. Yeah. And that's what we need to push against and know. If he had the foundation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I don't think he would have gone down that path. But uh, who knows? Uh, I think if we don't replace uh, bibliology with Christology as the foundation of Christianity, we're going to see countless more young Christians going off to college and graduating. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to emphasize the yeah. part in our churches. And I would push, I would push everybody to that Word document that's attached to the webinar. Um, a bibliology grounded in Christology. One of Excellent our, actually, article. all of our, men, one of our mentors, a guy named yes. uh, Dan Wallace, wrote this. It's on his blog. You can actually hyperlink the title to his blog. But I'll just, I just want to read um, a, a paragraph, a short paragraph that he has there that I think summarizes this really well. But he just says, the center of all theology, of the entirety of the Christian faith, is Christ Himself. The Christ event, in particular, His death and resurrection, is the center of time. And everything before it leads up to it. Everything after it is shaped by it. If Christ were not God in the flesh, he would not have been raised from the dead. And if he were not raised from the dead, none of us would have any hope. My theology grows out from Christ, is based on Christ, and focuses on Christ. And, and that's what we're trying to communicate. And so to be clear... We are inerrantists. <laughs> before you email us, um, yeah. Before ask. before you get angry I and throw you, I teach a DTS uh, exactly. Before you throw a shoe at me or whatever, just understand that what we're saying is we do believe uh, in the inerrancy and and even uh, more importantly than that in the inspiration of Scripture. Um, but also make the distinction that that is not the foundation for our belief. Um, our fun, the foundation is 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 a person. His name is Jesus, and I encourage you to get to know him. So, well, um, Justin, dude, thanks for your time, man. That was a that was a quick hour, <laughs> which means we're gonna have to have you back in the future. Especially, I, you know, I had you penciled in at least. I haven't even talked to you about it yet, but now I'm gonna put him in a corner to uh, talk about evidence for the resurrection. Great, but. But also, um, would just thank everybody for listening today. I uh, want you for sure want to re remember about the article that I mentioned. And then also next uh, month, I believe it's going to be May the 13th, whatever the Friday is. I'm actually looking on my phone right now. Um, but the next time we do this, we are going to be answering the question, what is Christian discipleship and who is a disciple? And man, I'm really excited about this. Uh, one of my, actually my faculty mentor for my doc, uh, for my doctor right now is going to join us. His name is Dr. Steve Porter. And then uh, one of the guys that's in the, uh, my doctoral cohort with me, uh, Scott Burns, who's Scottish. So we're going to have a nice accent. I'm going to um, pretend to have one. For us, for us next time. We're going to, but we're going to start to delve into the kind of the subject of Christian discipleship and what does that look like and what does it, what does that mean? How does it play itself out? Kind of in, in uh, everyday life. So that's coming up next month. Am I forgetting anything? Anybody? Knock it out. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining us and we will see you next time.